This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman and this week we're featuring the 2015 Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film event hosted at Sony Picture Studios in Culver City. This event focused on a theme of the art of sound design, music, dialogue, and effects in an immersive world. The topic of the second roundtable discussion is on sound effects, including workflow and innovative storytelling for working in an immersive sound. This panel was moderated by David Badanovich and featured Mandel Winter, Scott M. Gershwin, Gregory Hedgepath, Richard King, and Will Files. You can find out more about this year's Sound for Film event returning to Sony Picture Studio on September 17th at mixsoundforfilm.com. I hope you enjoy. One of the questions I like to ask people right off the bat is, uh, what is your background and how did you get into sound design? Because for most of us, it's a circuitous route. Very, very few people in school say, oh, I want to be a sound designer. Um, so who wants to start? I'll start. I guess I'm going to answer this more. I got into sound um, because in high school I, I found myself in front of a Pro Tools system and was completely fascinated with the possibilities and wasn't sure what to do with it. But eventually got to film school and ruined a lot of movies. <laughs> so but that, that's kinda, the place. Kind of found my way that way. That's the place to screw up is in school. <laughs> Well, uh, well, I started working, my first job as a kid was a, a, in a radio station. I was working on an AM radio station in South Carolina because uh, my father was the engineer. So, of course, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. So I got a weekend job basically when I was like 13 working at this radio station. And then, of course, I was playing in bands in high school, and I was the one who was always working the four-track machine and trying to get it to sound good. And then... I was always in love with movies and decided to go to film school because I didn't, couldn't think of anything better to do. And uh, when I got to film school, I was convinced that I wanted to be a DP because it was so much sexier than everything else, especially much more sexy than sound. You know, they could wear the, the cool clothes and get the girls and, you know, <laughs> sound guys, not so much. Uh, so as fun as that was, I realized very quickly that it also was a lifestyle that didn't really agree with me. I, you know, I didn't want to be on the road all the time. So um, I also realized that sound, even though it's sort of the ugly duckling of the film process, that's part of the charm, is that you're able to affect people emotionally in a way that they don't realize what you're doing. And, and that really the emotional core of the film is usually the sound. And so then I started gravitating back towards sound and I went in that direction for the rest of my time at film school and was lucky enough to get a job uh, interning for Randy Thomas Skywalker Sound and spent 10 years up there and uh, moved down here about three years ago and now I'm uh, doing my thing down here. Uh, for me, I, 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 think, I think if I wanted to be a rock star, um, I went to uh, Berkeley College of Music, uh, studied music. But the thing with me and the music that I liked, uh, I liked, loved orchestral music, also like we would be considered prog rock. And what I liked about it was it to me, musically told a story. Where it had a beginning, it took you somewhere, it, it, it peaked and it came down, and, and it had different phrases and flows to it, rather than just pop music that just makes your head, you know, nod like that. So then I came out uh, here, started working in the studio system, 
uh, at record studios and started learning the engineering side. And, you know, as we all know, when we first come to town, you know, you work 100 places and you make a couple pennies and you have 1,000 jobs all within one year. So I started programming synthesizers and uh, also for a lot of the big session players in town. And, they, you know, this was the days of DX7s and Jupiters, Jupiter 8s and Oberheims and stuff. So I programmed everything. And uh, what I started finding, it was kind of cooler to make, like, lasers and start making weird kind of sound effects. And then uh, I'm going to date myself, but the EMU-1 came out. And samplers started coming out, and Akai's, and CompuSonics, and Synclaviers. And so I started in the early days. I started playing with Atari computers and started realizing I can manipulate sound. And from my background of recording, I knew microphones, I knew recording, so I'd always go out and, and record stuff all the time and started manipulating it. So I started un understanding how to use sound, how to manipulate it, but it always comes back down to storytelling, which I always loved with music. And then when I finally started putting sounds against picture and can start taking an approach to start using sound as an emotional element. I mean, the definition of music is organized sound. So for me, it's almost like everything that we do is kind of music. And it's, as long as we're pushing to pull in emotional strings for an audience, to me, I just kind of look at it as kind of all music. Um, uh, I, was, I was pretty much a, a geek in high school, and I knew this guy that had a van and it was lined with carpet on the inside. And he was really good with the ladies, and I wasn't. So I, I, th I thought that was cool. So when I was on my first day on campus at the Univers University of Maryland, I walked by the radio station, and there was this room lined with carpet. And I was like, oh, damn. You know, that's, I'm going to get some ladies. I'm going to be on the radio. So I, I started working at the radio station and, uh, and didn't get any ladies. You know, but, uh, uh, but I did learn about sound, learned about uh, production, and that led to... Uh, uh, going on to getting a job at National Public Radio. I worked there for six years in, as an engineer and mixer and got to go to the Eastman School of Music. They sent me there for advanced recording and went to electronic school while I was there to, to learn more about electronics for two years. And then uh, a friend of mine got a job at Lucasfilm. She called one day, just happened to pick up the phone. I said, I got to work there. And she got me an interview. And two weeks later, I'd quit and had moved, up, moved to San Francisco. And that was really my... PhD in sound, I think. And then from there, after about six years, I realized I wanted to be able to buy my own house and, you know, and, and make more money. And, and LA had better salaries. So I came down here and got a job uh, working here on this lot at Sony. And actually, I met my wife years later on this lot. So it kind of did lead to, you know, picking up a chick finally. <laughs> but a, a very beautiful one. I, I really lucked up. But, um, so, uh, but along the way, I've worked in a lot of different uh, companies, Sound Deluxe, various Dane tracks, worked with Dane Davis, and I've been really fortunate that I've had a very varied experience in sound, and uh, now I'm working with Formosa Group. Um, I was, uh, uh, my, my friends and I were film enthusiasts uh, as kids and uh, made Super 8 movies um, and uh, did the soundtracks on, on four track quarter inch. Um, so we'd start the projector and the and the and the tape deck at the same time. Um, so it was crude what we could do. But then I went to art school in Florida, and it was kind of very. Uh, they had very um, kind of basic equipment: a sync block. They had a couple of moviolas. They had 
you know, one sync sound camera. And so the post-syncing of the movies we worked on was always really important because, because it was kind of nothing else. There was no sync sound. So um, I just became fascinated by this kind of checkerboard arrangement of being able to, to you know, layer sounds. My painting was my other uh, major in college and it felt like painting with sound, like you're layering sounds, they're translucent, you can see through them, but they all add up to be some greater whole than each of the individual sounds. Uh, then I went to New York to get into the film business, not knowing how or what or in what capacity, uh, but was fortunate enough to get a job with a guy that did uh, a little bit of everything. And he, he uh, so I was his secretary and his assistant cameraman and his assistant editor and his gopher and I made the coffee and so I got to see the, the full gamut of, of, uh, of, kind of film, in, in brief, of film, uh, of film jobs. And uh, the, the sound thing was always uh, just particularly fascinating because he did a lot of uh, documentaries uh, and frequently those are MOS and um, so my job frequently was to put sound on these MOS scenes, uh, films, some of them quite long. And I noticed that, this, that the, the picture totally changed when there was sound on it. And that moment when it changed was when the sound really started to work. Like when you really got the right sounds in and the right relationships and the balances were about right. Uh, and then we'd, I got to mix them uh, or oversee the mix at a mix stage. Uh, so I got a, I got a really good primer in 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 um, how to do it, and I I felt like it was something that I was good at and enjoyed and enjoyed losing myself in. You know, like it was a it was a way to really just kind of you kind of uh, uh, drew you into the into the movie in a way that that I found editing picture, which I also did a little bit of, didn't didn't provide me, and uh, moved out here in way back in the film days, and um, uh, did nothing but sound since I've been in Los Angeles, and uh, still enjoy it. Uh, I really liked Mark Mangini's comments this morning, and I wanted to ask all of you uh, a similar question. It's always hard to explain to people exactly what it is a sound designer does. Uh, and I think one way of explaining it would be to say, what is it that constitutes good sound design or what elements are necessary to create a good sound design? Um, Richard, you want to start this time? Um, well, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a question of what draws the, the audience into the film. And, and for me, I, I, don't, I don't know of any or have any uh, rules or, you know, uh, there's no blanket approach. Every film to me is a different animal and may require completely different solutions than the last film. So I just start to look at it and get into the, you know, the vibe of the film, what the aesthetic of it is and, and, and how sound can work and how sound can, can help what the director is trying to do. Uh, so yeah, I think good sound design is when the, when you can strengthen and, um, uh, uh, make more impactful, the impactful moments, and uh, 
um, and um, you know you're working in the service of the of the of the film. Um, and, yeah, do you have uh, any examples? Well, uh, I think that's that's always the case. I mean, you, if 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 someone goes to a film and starts thinking about the sound design, they're not in the in the movie, and that's a real danger. That especially as, as sound designers, you get very attached to your own work and. You know, you might have spent weeks or days or weeks on something and realized later on that it's not really the right direction. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to explain to people, especially outside post-production, what we do, because what we do is literally invisible. And you only really, know, in my opinion, you only notice it when it's distracting from the story. Well, it's interesting because you hear a piece of music and you can't separate that from the knowledge that someone wrote that piece of music. With sound design, someone composed all all of that work, but it's no one. It doesn't occur to anyone in the theater, except a couple of sound editors, that someone did all that work. <laughs> and uh, it's great to have that invisibility screen because you can do things that the composer would never get away with. But because the audience assumes that oh that crazy sound was there on the day they shot the movie, they don't even question it. So. Um, uh, unless you go too far, but but you can you can there's a lot of latitude to to you know to shape the 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 subtext of the of the movie of the scene you're watching with sound. Anyone else have any comments? Yes, great. Well, um, I worked uh, about a year ago on a low budget horror film, and uh, it it had some issues. And it's a film called Jezebel. And then uh, I'm sure, like maybe nobody's seen, but <laughs> but it, but it's actually a really good sounding movie as the plot goes. Eh, but it sounds good. But there was a particular scene that was supposed to be a dream scene where it was a continuous shot where the camera, uh, it's all steady cam. Camera pushes in through a door that opens up into this room, and you see this girl on a gurney. Uh, actually goes by a TV, you see this woman doing some things, some business, and she says, past your bedtime, sweetie, and then follows into a room, pushes into the room to this girl who's actually the one having the dream on this gurney, and then this woman comes over, bends over her, uh, you see a little shadow on the wall, then it moves with her through these rooms, she sees herself on another uh, table with all this voodoo stuff going on, then into another room where there's some things flashing on a TV, and then where there's to the back of this guy who's all burnt up and he's doing something on the ground. So, uh, on the floor, putting some sand on the floor. So, uh, the studio had a problem with the music. They didn't like the music that the director had chosen. So, they said, We want you to fix this with sound. And so that put me in kind of a dilemma because now I'm in between the studio and the director. So what I did is I did some musical tonalities similar to what the director had done, but a little bit different, a little bit creepier. Played it for him. He didn't like it. They liked it, but they said, okay, do something else that he would like. And he said, just go out of the box. Just do something different. So because it took place in Louisiana and had voodoo involved, I went to an African music store and got some instruments, some shaker rays, some, you know, bones and different things, and just recorded them. Uh, and um, so when you see it, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually very creepy. Now, if you look at it without the sound, it doesn't look that interesting. It's just a green tint to the whole thing, but it doesn't look scary. The woman who comes over to the bed is her mother. She doesn't look dead. She's supposed to be dead. So, you know, it's, I mean, she really doesn't. She's, she's dressed. She looks like she's doing just fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
so I had to use some really creepy tonality. So what I did was, now this gets to the sound design part, I, I, I kind of looked at the scene, and this is what we all do. We look at a scene and say, what is the scene telling us? What's the story that's being told, and what, what do we want to tell about that story with sound? And so what I did is I found this, uh, in, in our sound effects library, this African chant that goes And so I, I based the rhythm of what I was gonna do on that. So I got this rhythm going, and then what I did is I did a frequency sweep on it. And so it starts dull, and then it becomes present as we go over to the bed where she sees her, over to the table where she sees herself laying there, and then it, it dulls up again. So before that, we go up to her bed, um, I did a music box thing, played backwards. You, they, they plug a like a seatbelt in. You hear this, chunk. And in my dreams, when I hear sounds like that, they usually repeat themselves for some reason. So, you know, you hear the music box, it stops and chunk, 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 So that comes out of that. And then I'm trying to remember. Then I had some kind. Oh, I had some um, cicadas going, and then they go. Then we transition from them to the shake array going So now everybody's in sync. The African rhythm and the cicadas, blah, blah. We go into the room with the TV and I was like, what the heck am I gonna do? It's just these playing cards on the TV flashing. So I found this uh, vocal that's like So what I did is went but I came out of the shake array and out the, into those guys and the rhythm changed. And then I went into this whole thing with the guys putting the sand and I have these voices going around the room. So in the end, you know, everybody loved it and, and it really saved the scene. But, but it took me about a week and a half to develop that, going through all kinds of different things and tonalities and figuring out. And, and one time I, I got to a brick wall and I was like, oh, I was painting myself in a corner. Hit start over again. And so for me, that's kind of what sound design is, trial and error a lot of the time. Sometimes you know exactly what you want and you go right there, but sometimes you just find these little gems and they kind of link together. It's always nice to get a scene like that where you're given that creative uh, concept that you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Is everybody up here a musician, pretty much? No, I'm no. not. You're not? Uh, it's interesting because today on all the panels, people have talked about the musical elements of sound design, rhythm and pitch. Uh, do you find, any of you find that this often becomes a problem, that you, you've thought too much about pitch or rhythm and it ends up distracting either from the music or becoming too musical? Well, it's when it, when it collides with the music is when it's usually the hardest. You know, I say I, I did a lot of work uh, for a while with Oliver Stone and um, uh, I did something called Heaven and Earth. And what was interesting with that show was, I like, one of the styles I like to do is to take sound effects and figure out how to create atmospherics. So I did so much where I started getting gamelons and taiko drums and just things to create. Because I had this, when you get into a film, you kind of eat, live, and breathe it, and you kind of start taking on the personality. So if it's kind of a mellow one, you walk around kind of spaced out and, or stressed out. or you know, It depends on what a film you're on. So with this film, I just started really getting into it where um, I was starting to take animals and use them as part of torture parts and, and just had all these really weird... Um, Themes. I love themes. I love to have characters and themes and sounds that reoccur on, on different people. Anyway, it got so much so where I started using all these weird sounds and it became very musical that at the end I got a music credit. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, because Oliver Did said you get I love royalties. It. Just, 
Yeah. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, as a musician, it always bothers me that we work so hard at sound design and it's not represented the same way as the royalties you get in music. Well, I mean, and say nothing of how many of us have our own voices in movies. I oh, mean, it's yeah. kind of, oh, and, yeah, basically actors. every movie. Yeah. But um, for me, the whole music and sound effects thing, it's always, it's always going to be a bit of a clash. And so on the rare occasion when I'm working on a film where I can get in the same room with the composer for the spotting session or even just a phone call, try to pick the scenes that you know are going to be a clash for music and sound effects. And what I try to do is say, okay, do you want the tonal or the rhythmic part? And I'll do the other. And you try to split it up along those lines. Or at the very least, if you say, okay, well, we both got to do a rhythmic thing here because this scene's all about a train or whatever. And so how can we make those rhythmic things work together? Because, you know, having rhythms that clash is just as bad as having tonal things that clash. And what it ends up doing is making neither thing very effective. So to me, it's, it's the best when one side can take the rhythmic part, one side can take the thematic, more tonal part. Um, and, and I've had scenes where we've done that to a large degree, and it works like gangbusters. No one ever, no, no one, the audience doesn't have any idea that that's what's happening, but it's very effective. But you, you know, you can also do that tonally. Um, one of the things I did on a movie called Alive was we had this giant plane crash that happens and then it goes into this guitar piece. So I found out what pitch the guitar was going to be in. So you have this big plane crash, then it goes to silence, and this little wind comes out. And the wind is actually pitched to the same as the music. So a little reverb, that goes out, and then the guitar starts. And it, it wasn't by accident. It was all orchestrated that way. So you can do that. And if you have a scene you know, where there's a lot of music driving the scene, a lot of times I'll have my Foley editors cut against either a click track or against the music, as long as the music is what it's going to be in, in the actual film. Or at least but the tempo. It's the kind of thing where it's like, it makes things sound more in sync, even if they're actually less in sync visually, but they'll feel more in sync if they're on beat. Interesting. Uh, Mandel, uh, I, was, I was gonna add one thing, just a real quick one. On, on Straight Outta Compton, there was a scene where uh, there's this whole riot that happens, and then it ends with a, like a, I think a, a cut to black and a boom, and, and then the director wanted to have this 10K tone, but there was this de decay of a, a note, and it was just totally dissonant, and every time my eyes would start rolling in my head, I, was, I couldn't take it. I said, I gotta pitch that note. So I pitched it down to, I don't know, like seven and a half K or whatever, whatever was the, the right ending tone. And it was like, you know, played with the music and everybody's like, oh yeah, that's better. You know, but it wasn't bothering anybody. I don't I, I could never figure out why though. And I'll say one thing is that when you're on a dubbing stage and you're mixing, one of the things that I like to do is I'm always on Pro Tools. So if the mixers, effects mixers mixing, I'm always next to them. I'm constantly changing pitch and sync to be able to hit the points a little bit better. Because all of a sudden I go, you know what, if I do that another frame, frame and a half, and then drop the pitch just a little bit, it'll, it'll fit right in much better because I hadn't heard the music before that. So I'm constantly tweaking. I think you can overthink it too. And I, and I found myself doing that. I mean, I'm very prone to that. But I don't, I don't listen to the music at all. I just completely do my own thing <laughs> and hope for the best. And it's always worked out. You know, I mean, there's some, sometimes you're never going to get it. Sometimes there's a chance that. where you, uh, uh, you know, places where you dump one or the other, obviously. But um, uh, I mean, I, I really want 
it feels like to me the, the sound effects ought to exist mostly in a, in a space where the characters are hearing it. And um, I want to make a really clear division between the music, which is what the audience, it's like information for the audience, and, uh, and the world that the characters are inhabiting. And I always, I've always felt like my job is to make the world that the characters are inhabiting as visceral and as real and as three-dimensional and you know, alive as, as possible. Yeah, I've actually found myself pitch changing sound effects to get them out of the key of the music so that yeah. they have clarity. Yeah, that's the other. That's the other approach. Yeah. There's also a lot, there's a lot to be said though for it, for turning off the music when you're working, but you can always tell when an editor delivers tracks, and you can tell that they have never listened to the dialogue track. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you go well. You know, we could argue for maybe losing the music here, but we're probably not going to lose the dialogue. <laughs> so there's a lot to be said for paying attention to that. Uh, Mandel, you worked on True Detective last year. Did you find uh, working in television is more constraining in sound design, or uh, is it different in any way? Um, the, the pure shortness of time was insanity for us, because we're, we're used to a little bit more time. Uh, our sound designer uh, on that show, I was supervising that show, our sound designer, David Esparza, uh, worked really hard to be a, ahead of us. And so um, it, it would come down right to the end. Uh, because it was HBO, was there a longer schedule on the episodes? Or yeah, was it, it, was, it, was a a it was a longer schedule. It was a little bit more luxury, luxury I guess, for TV, but it still hurt. Uh, so I'm going to ask the opposite question now. What are the what are the problems that you usually encounter in sound design, other than, of course, music versus effects? We just have way too much money and way too much time. <laughs> to do the um, I I know for me, uh, I, I I hear some of the titles that everybody else have worked on, and and I feel like my budgets are are much smaller, and so uh, I know for me it's it's hard to stretch the dollar. And, and make sure as much of that gets on the screen as possible. Um, I think time allows you to experiment more and, and come up with really, really great ideas uh, that develop over time. But sometimes you have to go with your gut and you have to commit stuff in the edit bay. And uh, the great thing is to have sound designers that you work with that, that have great instinct and, and great taste and that when you come to the dub stage, you know that it's going to work. Yeah, a lot of it's finding people that you, people to have on your team that have similar taste to you, so that you're not. It's not a taste collision because that's a big part of our job. I mean, so much of sound is is vibe and and feel, and so taste becomes a big part of that. And everybody has their own particular taste. Otherwise, you know, we'd all be the same. Um, I'd say for me, the the hardest thing. Lately, is that the schedules are getting crazier and crazier towards everything's just being pushed to the very end. So you, you have these big visual effects films that they're biting off more than they can chew. So everything shows up in the last week. And then you've got to just reconceive these huge scenes or huge concepts, you know, where stuff shows up and you go, well, that ship, we've never seen that ship before. What's that, <laughs> what's it doing? Um, and you know, you can try to stockpile stuff along the way. You try to get as involved as you can with the visual effects vendors and you're getting mock-ups and you're getting proof of concept stuff and you're, you're hopefully making sounds along the way and getting the director involved and 
you know, another thing that happens sometimes on these movies, there's too much time. And so the directors actually get bored and, and they throw out sounds because they're kind of tired of them and they, you know, they want to try something new, try something new. And so there's a danger in that as well. I mean, I, I hate to, you know, it sounds like, it sounds like a very privileged position to come from, but it, when you're trying to work on high concept ideas, that can be a very, uh, it's a quagmire. If you have too much time, and you know, some directors just have one idea and they see it cleared through to the end, but they're not all like that. I also find I do a lot of CG shows, and you know sometimes people go, "Oh my God, you've you've been on a show for a year or a long period of time," but like, look at a show like Pacific Rim. I was on it for a really long time, but here's the way it really worked. Um, we'd be waiting around, and CG would finally say, "Great, here it is, Thursday." We start mixing Monday. And this is some, here's some Kaju, here's some Jaegers, here's something really hard. Go. And so you spend a lot of time treading water. And then I usually find four days, two days before the mix, you pretty much are doing 24-hour days, or at least it feels like it. And, and it's everything you could think of now has to come together. All the little pieces all have to come together very quickly and also with your team. You're never doing it by yourself. And, and it's just got to go. And then you're on the dubbing stage and the picture's changed yet again. And um, it's constantly... You know, I, I think now that they're out of moviolas and they're out of, of, of chems, it's just too easy to fix it. Uh, one of the things we joked with on, on Pacrim was when ILM would deliver a CG piece it always has eight frames of head and tail. So Guillermo said, hey, I love it. Let's put it in. So I, I wanted to make a t-shirt saying you're killing me with eight frames. Um, <laughs> because literally there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds every mix of new eight frame pieces. And the music editor was dying because his, his music looked like barcode. <laughs> and um, so, you know, because coming to me going, you know, is this going to work? And I'm like, yeah, but you got to talk to the music guys because I think I think you just passed out. Um, <laughs> but no, and, and that's why one of the things that I love with the new technology, um, w w such as Pacific Rim and everything I've done since, um, everything's virtual now. I don't want to do pre-dubs. I don't want to do it old school because on these CG shows, they're constantly changing if I re-record it, that means I need to get a second stage, go back in, and now we don't have the time that we really need. Meanwhile, I'd rather just take the Pro Tools session, expand it out, and start manipulating that session with the automation that the mixer put in. And now all of a sudden, I can keep evolving it really quickly from temp one, temp two, pre-dubs, all the way through the whole process. So it becomes more evolutionary. And, and also, you know, uh, I prefer to work uh, virtually too because if you render things to stems, and sometimes you do, but when you render to stems, you want to have an, as much uh, flexibility, so you're going to have to make a lot of stems. And then, you know, if you have a separate stem that may have just two elements on it, you still have 20 minutes of that stem, and then you multiply that by multiple tracks and then multiple reels. That's a lot of data to keep moving around. And then when you got to, you know, copy from you know, one place to another, and you got to update. It's it's a lot of management. Whereas if things are virtual, you know, it's easier to deal with. But uh, for for me, you know, I've worked on big budget shows and and smaller, tiny micro budget shows, no budget shows, and the smaller the budget, usually the harder it is. And actually, I've worked on some freebies that were just like insanely hard because 
The problem is the sky's the limit for that person who's saying, could you do like such and such? Yeah, that's going to take me a week for free. I don't have, you know, but they don't care because it's for free. <laughs> but, um, you know, but ironically, in my room, uh, I have a, a folder with some demo material. And some of the material I'm most proud of is the shows that were low budget. Like I do have that scene from Jezebel. Uh, on my demo reel, and I have uh, some scenes from another movie called Skyline that uh, anybody see? No, I didn't think anybody saw that. But, um, yeah, the, uh, connoisseur. Um, but but I'm, I'm very proud of the movie, even though, you know, as an alien invasion movie, it was, it was so-so, but there's some, some really good stuff there. But it was the same kind of thing where we have no budget, and it's coming in last minute. So I had to spend a lot of time making sure I communicated to the picture department when I'd see like a long shot with some little things, little dots kind of moving around, I kind of realized, oh, those are going to be alien, small alien craft, but I call out the picture department. Okay, what are they going to look like? What kind of propulsion system do they have? Is it going to make noise? Is it going to, you know, are we going to hear it from a distance? You got to figure all that out because we just, with no budget, you don't have time to make mistakes or put or spend time putting something in that's not going to make noise that you could have used for something else, so that's you know, some of what I'm up against. Yeah, it seems like sound has become uh, treated more as a service. You know, it's at the end of the project. It's, this, it's a service. The studios look at it as a thing that they can create a finite budget for that's going to cover, should cover the whole sound, because that's what the last one cost. And, uh, you know, um, and even the big budget movies, as you guys know, are, are, are incredibly problematic. And, and the problem with the big budget movies is they've got the money to work you over time. So they don't, at a certain point, if things get really hairy, they'll work you to death. Right. You know, And um, th that's cheap for them. It's a cheap solution. So uh, um, I think as much as we all can, and we can't always do it, um, we usually can't do it, but as much as we can, we need to reinforce the idea that this it's a process it's not a it's not a we're not painting the car as mark mangini's analogy we're 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 uh you know this is a this is this is as important as visual effects or picture editing and it deserves the time that it takes one of the things mark uh, mentioned this morning was the fact that we often get referred to as the sound guy and I think that's a reflection that many directors and producers, especially younger ones, don't really understand the process and don't understand what our job titles are. How do you work with, uh, or how do you encourage a young director to quickly get up to speed on how to communicate what they want out of the sound department? Show them stuff yeah, and get a reaction. Because yeah. then you have a point of reference and you have a, you're, you're not dealing with abstractions. You don't try to teach them anything along the way. No, I might give <laughs> it's a waste them. of time. Yeah, waste of time. <laughs> I mean, you could you could give them a couple movies to watch because I mean, as we all know, sound design in a vacuum is it, good. Sound design doesn't exist outside of good movies. You know, it's hard to it's hard to make a good sounding scene that isn't designed to use the sound well, right? You can't just put cool sounds on a scene and like, oh, it's going to sound great. I mean, it might sound cool, but it's not going to be truly effective the way Apocalypse Now or The Conversation or, you know, one of those kind of movies that is designed to use the sound in a certain way. Um, but, you know, it's like you said, you're getting stuff in front of people, that's even true for really experienced directors in, in my experience. It's like the earlier you can get them just reacting to something instead of talking abstractly, because no one knows how to talk about sound. It's very, very hard to talk about sound. 
And, and, and then the other thing, for. I was going to say the other thing, it's it's great when you can get them to put some of those sounds in the Avid early on and start to fall in love yeah, with them, yeah. as opposed to their sound, of, their crappy sound effects that they put in, that they fall the, in their love Their library with. And a lot of times when I, when I talk to my clients, the first thing I ask is not what they want, because to be honest, they don't know. That's why they hired you. Right. Um, I, I ask them what they don't like. You know, oh, uh, like I remember, I say when we, Pacific Rim, first thing, you know, I said, what don't you want? He goes, I don't want Transformers. That's the big, I don't want anything to sound that way, and I want it to be all, all organic, as if it was moving destroy, destroyers. You know, a lot of times, like I built a room that's kind of an Atmos editing room, uh, seven one the whole bit. What I like to do is come up, ask them what they don't like, kind of do the 20 questions, then say, great, let me do a scene, let me do something that's important, uh, something that's going to be a milestone within the movie. Let me start stinking my teeth into that. And then come on over. And then let's start having a communication based on the sounds you hear and the direction and make them part of the process, not at the dubbing stage, but in the editorial process. Bring stuff to the cutting room. Start letting them participate in that. If we just kind of go off on our own, we do some stuff, we show up on the stages, it just doesn't turn out as well as it could. If we start bringing them early on into the process, we start bringing them, they start coming up, they start feeling involved and they start getting involved, they get excited. Then we start experimenting and we start a discovery process because I think every film, you know, what's the difference between a low budget and a, and a normal budget, let's call it? We can all create probably great soundtracks on low budget. Let me do it, now go away, let me do it, it'll be great, I'll come back, you'll love it. But that's not the full artistic uh, uh, arc uh, that the clients want to go through. What they want to do is explore with you. And the more we bring them into it, and the more that they become part of the process, then all of a sudden it becomes a really great experience for them, for you, for the stage, and it evolves. So when they get to the stage, they already know what it is, and they just walk away very happy. Yeah, because they have ownership over they the They have process. ownership, yeah. yeah. They've been part of it. Well, and to that end, I've actually changed the way I budget shows now, where I used, the traditional way was, you know, you'd start really lean, and then you'd build and build and build towards a bigger crew at the end. And it's inevitable in a, almost any studio film these days that you're going to have to go a little wider at the end because of the changes, especially visual effects. But what I would like to do these days is front load my crew, so I have a bigger crew at yeah. the beginning. We really cut the first temp. We try to cut the shit out of it and make it sound great because that's going to be living in the Abbott for the next five months or longer. That's exactly what we're yeah. doing now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the director's cut yeah. screening, basically, yeah. which is probably the most important for screening them. the film will ever have, right. yeah. gets a great soundtrack. Ass, right? And, and yeah. even though the movie's three hours long at that point, you know, an <laughs> totally. hour of your work's going to be cut out, you know, you've got a really good head start. Yeah, and I'll even do it with mixed budget, too, where I'll say, look, let me take five of my pre-dub days away from the final pre-dubs, and I want to use those for temp, more temp days. Or I might even use a couple days of pre-dubs before the temp and then have a longer temp schedule. You know, So it's like trying to take the same money and move it around in a way that's more effective for the film, and actually it's better for the filmmakers, right? Because the whole thing with the director's cut is you, you want to do right by them because that's them fighting for their version of the movie with, for the studio. It's the first time the studio is really going to see it, and so you want to try to help them dazzle the studio as much as possible. Okay, uh, a year ago, we all convened to talk about immersive sound. And in the year that's come and gone, I'm wondering whether people think that we've established what immersive sound is and what it's going to be, or do you still feel like we're standing on the edge of the precipice 
waiting to discover what immersive sound is going to be in films. For me, I still have not stepped into immersive sound. I mean, the most I've done is 7.1. Um, but that's still immersive. Okay, so I mean, five, we went immersive on Equalizer, right? but technically. 5.1 is, you know, yeah, we've been mixing right. in 3D sounds, you know, since A good stereo 80s. track will fill the room, right. uh, as, as my mixers like to tell me. So um, I, I think there's still room to grow. I mean, we're, we're hoping to find extra budget somewhere along the way for Mag 7, uh, so we can do that in Atmos, but I just put that out to the world now, so hopefully that happens. <laughs> I think I'm hearing the, it seems that as, even in the you know, couple years, three years since Atmos came out, and now we've got these other formats as well, it does seem like the mixes are becoming a little more elegant. They're not as showy, you know, people aren't as eager just to say, hey look, there's speakers on the ceiling. You know, we're using them in, in more elegant ways that feel more like a cohesive mix instead of just a, you know, extra bit of, a, bit of sound here and there just for the sake of the gimmick. And I think part of that too is because more of us are doing native Atmos mixes, which I think for my money is the way to go because not only does it end up giving you a better product, but I think it's more efficient in the long term in terms of the total amount of days it takes. You know, if you spend three weeks mixing your final in 5.1 or 7.1 and then you spend a week mixing in Atmos, well, first of all, you're, you're taking a movie that you've basically already made all these key creative decisions in a totally different format, and then you're, you're going up. You know, so it'd be like doing all your color timing in 2K and then going up to 4K or you know, something like that. So what I like to do is the other way around, where you start with the highest resolution possible, and then you create all your, all your smaller masters from there. And to me, that gives you a better product in the end, because you're, you're hearing it in the highest detail possible when you're actually doing the creative work with the director in the room. So I do think that it's evolved a bit. And I think the main thing moving forward will be from an engineering side to try, I know Dolby and Avid are working on this and, and, and DTS and all these other guys that are working on the, the new tools. It's all about how can we bring the friction level down in terms of when you sit down to mix, you shouldn't have to think as hard about it. You know, right now there's a certain, there's a level of engineering, especially in the setup part, that as a mixer, you're sort of detached a little bit from just watching the movie and reacting. You have to think a little too much about the, the process, right? And so I think as it'll continue to evolve, it will naturally get more elegant in terms of the, the process and the flow. And you'll just, I think the mixes will all benefit from that. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the 3D joystick so that you can move stuff yeah. up and around just by waving your hands like Tom Cruise. Or, uh, you don't have that yet? No, I don't have that. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think also, you know, every time we see immersive sound, I think we keep seeing these giant e-ticket blockbuster CG extravaganzas. I have to admit, uh, on Nightcrawler, um, I've done the big stuff. It becomes a three-ring circus, and you're not really sure what you should be listening to, and, and you're constantly juggling between how many thousands of sounds do we want to hear at any one given time and all that. What I actually think about immersive audio is like when we did Nightcrawler. It's, I love the quieter movies. I like the more subtle movies. I went out, um, uh, did a DPA 5100 five-channel mic two feet above my car, drove down Hollywood Boulevard in Western at about 20 miles an hour. To, so none of the Bee Gees were ever like just put up a stereo track and just let it go because he's driving the whole time. So all of a sudden these subtleties, all these really cool things start happening. The best times that I think I've had experiences with immersive audio is not with the big movies, but with the quiet movies and all these great little subtleties. 
that I that are just just like a fine wine. It's great. You know? But I think what you guys achieved on Interstellar in five one, I thought was some oh, yeah. of the most immersive work I'd ever heard, and it was in five one, and or in IMAX. I heard in IMAX, and it you know it was incredible. It was so enveloping and so overwhelming. And I was thinking, well, you know, that's an example of how you don't necessarily need the extra channels to accomplish it, but it's all about the intent and it's about the choices. And it's also about what sounds that you want to put around the room. I mean, um, uh, I, for animation, it's great because you're not tied to this, this problematic production track that kind of dulls a little bit the, 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 you know, the, 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 the imaging perception. Um, with animation, because they're typically in 3D, this theater becomes an extension of the screen space. So you, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a natural, it's a natural uh, flow. But I would like to the, just uh, bring up a different point of view than what Will said. Um, to me, it, it, people see films in Atmos, maybe two or 3% of the population sees them in Atmos. I would rather work on the version that everybody's going to see. And then, because that's where everyone feels the, you know, the ownership and the connection and, and you've worked, everyone's worked so hard to get to that point. Once you see it in 5.1 and get it how they want it, that seems like the place to then go off and do the Atmos mix. Whereas if you spend eight weeks on an Atmos mix and then say, okay, now we're going to work on the version that everybody's going to see. And it's kind of a letdown, you know, because it's different. Even though it's not worse, it's just different. So, so you're, you're having to kind of make, the, you send them out the door feeling like they're having to make a little bit of a concession. And I don't think, you know, when there's more Atmos theaters, that's all going to change. But for right now, uh, kind of on the fence about that, that yeah. notion. Well, it makes sense. I mean, the problem, of course, is getting, when you, when you go that way, which makes perfectly it's perfectly logical, makes sense. It's impossible to get the director to stick around for the next mix. Yeah, but you know, you know what's important though. Um, that way we can have more fun. <laughs> yeah, right. From, from, right. from my last couple of films, um, what I've realized is I love films, I love theaters. It's really the great place to see it. But the reality is, it's maybe thirty days old, sixty, ninety if you're lucky, and then the next thirty years is going to be near field. Yep. So one of the things that always happens in our budgets. They'll do all this time to mix, all this time to print master, and then you get like a day on the near field. And I've actually been pushing to get like more. And I've talked to the directors and I said, look, this is going to test, this is going to last you the rest of your life. Yeah, You're going to be defined the by the near field. The most important mix is the 5-1 near field. Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I have fought hard to make sure we get the time that we need because you do hear things differently. All of a sudden, things are going to come out and you're going to want to make these little adjustments or with animation, sometimes they go, we don't want to scare the kids, so we really want to like, take the sub out, or we want to lower the low end, and we want to be very safe. But in a 5-1 mix where you can control the, I'm sorry, in a near field mix, where you can control the volume, you can be a little more creative on the lower end. It's not going to scare you quite as much for the little kids. And there's certain things that you can evolve differently than you would have normally in maybe in theatrical. Great, I think we have some audience questions now. Let's open it. Well, I mean, so the sounds of it, you mix 5171 Atmos. How close to the wire do you get to the premiere? I mean, it sounds like you're almost doing it the day it's being released, aren't you? Or how close do you guys get? Uh, closest I've gotten to the premiere is three days. 
Yeah. And also, by the way, here's something which you've you got to realize. Okay, there's Atmos, 7151 LTRT, okay? Then there's Foreign, M&E's, which is 5171, uh, all the different formats. And then lately, there's the Chinese version. So sometimes I'm spending more time making versions than I am mixing the movie. Yeah, you have two dub stages or more going more. at the same time. Yeah. Sometimes you're doing temp M&Es as you're going so that the foreign mixers have something to start with. I mean, it's, the whole thing is so compacted now. It's insane. Well, and there's the other one. Sometimes you're doing a temp while you're doing your final. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 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 And television schedules can be even worse. I've, I've worked on shows where they've shot a scene the day before it aired. Yeah. <laughs> Got one right over here? Yeah, uh, hi. I, my question was regarding the, uh, the debate of whether or not to collaborate early on with the music team. Early in the panel, uh, the first panel this morning, it seemed like the consensus was that it was uh, rare and that they wanted to do it more. And I'm wondering, it didn't seem like the example that you gave, which was that it, just, it was your creative decision to not bring in that influence. Why is it so rare today when we hear these stories of like these great collaborations between the sound and music team? And does the um, new formats like Atmos make it easier to uh, combat clashing because you have more uh, ability to space things out or anything like that? Maybe a little bit. It actually helps with dialogue. Yeah. Because I find you take the music and spread it out into the early part, so it's a little hole. Screen, yeah. but, but you do have to still be careful that, like when I'm mixing natively in Atmos, I will constantly be checking the down mix yeah. to see what it's doing to the 7-1 and the 5-1 because you don't want to make choices that are only going to sound good in Atmos. You want it to sound better in Atmos, but it, it can't sound crappy in 5-1 or 7-1. So if you're crowding the dialogue or crowding you know, whatever it is that needs to be the main thing, you just need to make sure that's still reading well in the lesser formats. And you also have to realize uh, there's the dark side to Atmos, and that's not all Atmos theaters sound the same. So if you put pertinent information in the ceiling, and let's say that theater, there's because there's a bunch of theaters, even in town here, the, uh, the ceilings don't quite translate as well. Got to be careful. Got to make those decisions. It's slightly better than normal because at least, you know, there's a good chance if you go out in the middle of Topeka or something and you go to 5-1, if, if you put a voice back there, you might not ever hear it. So at 5-1, you know, the old school theaters, it's even more of a, it's a total, uh, you, you have no idea. It's, it's a roll the dice. And there's You're, still a significant number of old school theaters. Yeah, you have well, to hope for the best. You have to make sure that the storytelling is being accomplished with mostly what's happening on the screen. But in terms of your first question, I think part of the problem is just getting people literally in the same room together. You know, there's a lot of, we're all, the composers and all of us and the director, we're all, you know, pretty busy folks and it's hard to get somebody sometimes to drive from the valley to Santa Monica or, you know, whatever and to get everybody's schedules to line up. And so a lot of times it's just, I've had sessions where I've gone on the side and met with the composer because the director didn't have the time to sit in the room with us and go through the film. So he sort of talked to us, you know, in passing separately about this or that, and then we sort of put our heads together, go, what, what did he say, what did he say, okay, this and that, and you, you sort of try to figure it out on your own. But I mean, a lot of times it just doesn't happen. Yeah, I like to try to go to the music spotting session. And even though, you know, they'll joke around with me and, and uh, I'm very quiet. Actually, I like to sit on the yeah, side, be a fly on the wall, see what direction, because if he's doing a contrabass and I'm going to put a low-end rumble, we're going to have a problem here. So I like to kind of see what he's thinking and try to get an idea of, of some insight of what's coming at me. Right. We have, have we another have, question? We have a question here from Topeka for Will, I think. No. <laughs> Sorry, Topeka. 
I'm not from Topeka. Um, I'm interested to know how much uh, pre-recorded sound effects used from libraries and originally recorded, and if there are pitfalls with using uh, uh, sound effects, library effects that have ambience on them and the object-oriented uh, mixing. I think we all strive to use as much original material as we can, as long as, you know, whatever we have time for. Um, but we all ha also have huge libraries that we've maintained over the years and keep adding to. And there's a lot of independent libraries out there now, and it's, you know, there's probably a bunch of people here that are selling their own sounds online that go out for a recording session, and they'll sell those online, maybe it's 100 bucks, you know, something like that. And you get a lot of really great recordings that way, which is, it's always a great thing to have fresh material. Um, and uh, I'm sure these guys have lots to add to that, but I'll give you one little example for a film I did a couple years ago called Dawn of the Planet of the Apes which was a difficult film in the sense that we had to assemble so much material of apes, which is not that easy to get your hands on, actually. So we did go to like an ape refuge and recorded a bunch of chimpanzees and apes and you know all sorts of animals. Uh, we went to the zoo and recorded things. Um, we, we assembled tons of material that we bought from people we found on YouTube, um, uh, naturalists, uh, scientists. Um, and we assembled all this material, and then there was a huge process of trying to clean it up because it was recorded in all sorts of different ways and different, you know, you go to record something at the zoo, and you've got a primate that's in a, uh, a cage made of cement, and, you know, that's incredibly echoey. And what, you have to try to take all this stuff and weave it together into what feels like coherent performances. So it all has to feel like not only is it coming out of the same animal, but it's, it's coming out of, you know, it has, you have to try to nullify, neutralize everything so then you can add another world around it. Um, so that took a, a lot of almost like forensic style work. So using we, like RX-4 or DVR? Used a lot of RX. We used um, Unveil to take a lot of the reverb out. Um, and you know, all that stuff has to be done carefully and with good taste so that you're not sucking away the essence of the sound itself. Um, and so there was stuff you know, that ended up being a little dirtier than maybe I would have liked, but you just try to carve around it and you use the best bits and, and you try to hide it in various ways. Anyone else have comments about library effects? Oh. I was just going to say that I, I like to combine old and new sound effects kind of together because the old ones are kind of meaty and they just, after they've been run through a lot of processing, even some op old optical effects, they just have a lot of something to them, but they're very noisy. So I use you know, RX quite a bit to clean those up you know, before I add the, the new sizzly bright thing on top of it. I, mean, I love to record. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's the closest thing to career day that I ever do because you go in and you live the life of whoever you're recording and kind of get an essence of what their life's like. Um, but at the same time, you know, maybe it's the supervisor in me, less the sound designer, that my ego's not so tied to making sure it has to be my recording. Otherwise, that's it. Look, again, we're trying to tell a story here, and if there's a great sound out there, and I don't care if it's a crappy old sound, but that's the right sound. So you look at it and go, that's it. That, that's what it's needed right there. Then I think everything's available to you as long as it, it, it fits and it's the right thing at the right time. One more. I, uh, I came from uh, the days of analog mag stock editing where about all we had were razor blades and sandpaper to make any changes into the sound of the tracks that we were given to work on. Uh, it seems to me that in the digital age, 
roles have kind of shifted more, and you talk about all of the things that you do to affect your sound effects, the manipulations that you can put in. Well, it's and really then, just in the and lab. then I then I listen to uh, mixers that say, uh, "Don't paint me into a corner uh, with this stuff." Uh, do you put a like in dialogue? Oftentimes, I would put a the the clean track that came from from the the production track dialogue, so that uh, they could at least go back to it. And I'd tell my editors. Don't render this. Just uh, or give me an unrendered track so that we aren't painting the, our, our mixer into a corner on this sort of thing. Uh, do you have that kind of interface in the effects world on that sort of thing? I think it's our job to paint somebody into a corner because we have to present something that's a co coherent idea, you know, and. Uh, and I started out with the razor blade and the sandpaper too, and the mag wipe and, and all that. And you know, the 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 the, um, a, a philosophy and approach really isn't any different. It's just you've got much more precise tools, and I, I don't think I work any different than I did working on mag. But it's it's just a much uh, uh, it's just a much more um, creative and satisfying way to work, and gives you so many more so many more tools, and also gives you innately the ability to branch out in different directions from this coherent idea that you brought. So if, if the director doesn't like the direction you've chosen on one thing, you've got, it's very quick to change direction. You, you know, usually got a library available to you on the stage so you can recut something or add something. I learned a lesson when I uh, worked on the movie Twister and I designed uh, tornadoes for it. And so for the first reel, well, for all the reels, you know, I supplemented the wind sounds with animal sounds. But for the first reel, and I wasn't on the dub stage while they were mixing it, uh, there were a couple of guys mixing effects on different sides of the console. And one guy was mixing through a limiter to hold his stuff back and the other guy wasn't. One guy, it turns out, had the wind sounds, the other guy had the animal sounds. Unfortunately, the animal sounds were not going through the limiter. So if you listen to the first reel of Twister, the opening of it, you know, you can clearly hear the animal sounds and every time I hear it, I, at least I can hear it, you, yeah, I kind of cringe. It's supposed so, to be bedded in. Right. Yeah, so, so for the next reels, I combined them and I tied the mixer's hands. I still gave them lots of variety of winds, but as far as the animal sounds, they were mixed in underneath the winds to support them as opposed to like stick out. I also think traditionally, it used to be that you brought a whole bunch of library, you sunk it up, you went on a stage, you spent three months mixing, see what could be done. And you kind of evolved the mix on the stage. Um, I don't, I usually very rarely get that luxury anymore. Uh, so I think now it's still a, a problem that needs a solution. And what, what I mean by that is, okay, they need to hear sound. First of all, the picture cutter has a lot more power than they've ever had because they have a lot of times 32 tracks of audio. Uh, we have more power that we can do certain mixing. I think it's a partnership between actually all three. I think that you work with the picture cutter, you work with the mixer, you understand their style, they understand and have confidence in what you know how to do, and it becomes a partnership across the way because a lot of times we'll be on projects for 25, 30 weeks, pretty commonly, and the mix happens at the end. Well, at the beginning part, the editor wants to start having something to play the studio, 
the director. They want to start understanding what they're putting together, both musically and, and design-wise. So we start working with the cutting room to start putting a shape to the sculpture of the, of the sound of the movie. So it starts coming together. Ooh, I like what that's doing. Oh, that's great. And it's, you know, it's, it's definitely rough, but they're starting to get pieces, especially those scenes that really are audio dependent. That's not going to happen at the end. That's actually happening on the director's first cut because it's got to be part of the storytelling process. Then along the way, then you start handling it off, let the mixer start getting involved. But they've, kind of know what's been going on along the way, at least hopefully they should, because they're part of the process as well. I'd say even though we're, we're living in like a, a virtual world now where we don't have to commit, you can have hundreds of tracks, all that sort of thing, there's really a lot to be said for, especially with design sounds, like conceptual sounds, or even let's say, let's use the example of like a gunshot, like a special gunshot. I would much rather as a mixer, or even as a, as a supervisor, editor, have one, you know, a stereo sound that's like, okay, here's 10 gunshots of various types um, that were made up from God knows how many different elements and manipulated in various ways rather than all the raw material that made those because I don't, that's, that's like, okay, those decisions have been made. Let's close that door. Let's move on to the next decision. You know, the, the post-mixing process is a big funnel, right? It just keeps, it's very reductive, keeps going down and down and down. And there's something to be said for just the relief of saying, okay, that that choice was made. That's a sound. If we need another sound, we'll go get another sound. But there's the, that's the sound, you know. And it's good to relieve yourself from like having to spin quite as many plates constantly. So I think it's good to commit to things, even if it's on a micro level like that. Uh, even though most of our pre-dubs are going to probably be staying more and more virtual these days, there's a lot to be said for that. But not every single element needs to be raw. Do you feel like immersive sound at all has unlocked that though and that you have to have individual elements instead of pre-dubs so that for the immersive you can point source something? I think it's still the same thing like your example. It's like that, what you were making was, that was a sound, that was an idea, right? right? An that wind and that lion or whatever it is, that was supposed to be together as one sound. And so that would still come out of the same place in the theater. And there's no reason to keep that stuff separate. It, it only creates more problems. All right, I get in trouble for going over, but the president of the MPSC wants to ask a question. 30 seconds or less for each of you. Oh, I'll just make it quick, but what I find really helps a lot is um, when we collaborate with the sound designers, getting their rooms to the same level as what we're going to hear on the dub stage, because I find that it's important, A, to try and match the monitors and the tonality of the monitors, and B, try to get the same level. And I just find that helps tremendously, not only with sound effects, but with dialogue. We get our dialogue editors listening to it at the same level because it does change the tonality, the balances, the dynamics of everything. Um, have you guys run across that? Has that helped you uh, when you're doing sound design? You know, I'm gonna throw one thing out, and uh, the, uh, the heads of editorial may not like this, but for everyone who knows me, I'm a bit of a speaker freak because I have lots of speakers and I like to, you know, I love listening to different sound. One of the things that's a holdover from the old days is that just put a guy in, he's going to sync it up, put some sounds, we're going to go to the domain stage, it's going to make sense. So they build these square little rooms that are usually echo chambers or have these weird little acoustical anomalies. And because there's so many of us, they just kind of, they kind of stamp them out. I do believe, you know, it's, it's maybe because it's come from the music studio days, 
look, you've got to have the right speakers. You've got to have the right, at least basic acoustics. It doesn't have to be crazy. But you can't, you know, it's got to have some semblance. And it's great to see even the speakers here with the, both Myers and JBL are doing in a near-field environment to be able to try to give us some essence, some kind of translation. Because one of the things difficult is when you're in a room and you're going, wow, you know what? I'm hearing way too much low end or not enough low end, so you crank it. And then it goes to the stage and either you don't hear it anymore or it's just out of whack. Same thing with the surrounds. I do believe these rooms need to be set up. They need to be uh, pinked. They need, yeah, I mean, and you should get speakers that actually translate to the environment that you're doing. So whether it's TV, it's TV, film is film. And, and that's why, like, I personally have three sets of speakers in my room because I'm dealing with different mediums. I, th I can't even stress it as much that I believe that you have to have the right rooms and the right acoustics. Yeah, and the more right size. The, more and more of the mixed decisions are happening earlier in the process, right? right? So it's, it's only natural that we're seeing manufacturers like JBL and Meyer introducing speakers that sound more like cinematic speakers in a near-field environment. And it's, it's super important to keep everybody at the same level because, I mean, we've all had things where one editor's speakers are way too hot, one editor's speakers are way too low, everything comes to the stage and either takes your head off or you can't hear it. Right. right, and and then you have to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out, okay, what was the ballpark here? And you said the same problem with cutting rooms. We send people out to the cutting rooms all day long because I worked on one movie, and they go, you know what, it's not loud enough. And I'm like, my lights are vibrating in my room. I have no <laughs> clue what you're talking about. So you go there, and what do they do? They crank up the Avid, and they turn the little Mackie mixer down, and there's nowhere to go. They, they keep bringing it up, and there's, they're already no at plus 12. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's the learning process that... We have to help the cutting rooms. We have to help the editorial. We're all growing. We're no longer mag cutters. We're no longer guys that are just put it in there. Even these speakers are in the ceiling and one's not working really. And yeah, you know, you'll just sync it up. That's all we need you to do. Um, I think times are changing. And I'll just add one, one last thing. I think we have the, the benefit, the luxury in the film and TV world that people in the music industry don't have, whereas there's no standard level for how you know, music's going to play back in somebody's living room or their car. But you know, in TV, we do have a standard level, although you know, people do vary the level at home, but you have a standard to, to hit. And in film, we have a standard uh, to mix to. And the truth is also that most theaters are, are kind of doing what people do at home. They're turning their levels down. But we have a standard by which to mix to, so we might as well take advantage of that in our editing rooms. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this panel discussion on sound effects from last year's Mix Magazine Sound for Film event. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com.